I love my job. I, I really do. I'm like a pig in Mars when I'm operating. I think it's, you know, amazing. Uh, and I think part of that comes from, as I said, that sort of, I suppose, fascination with our bodies and how cool they are. There is research to suggest that if you are exercising for an appearance goal, your motivation might might be okay for a little while, but then it will fade away. Whereas if you are motivated to exercise because of what you can do and what you can achieve, then that's more likely to be longer lasting and much more fulfilling you know, to yourself, to your soul. Hey everyone, I'm Alex Davies, Features Editor at Women's Health Australia, and welcome to the brand new instalment of Women's Health Uninterrupted. Why is self-compassion so vital? Is the life of a surgeon just like we see on Grey's Anatomy? Can you actually die from a broken heart? Yep, today's chat is a juicy one. Joining me at Women's Health HQ is heart and lung surgeon Dr Nikki Stamp. In addition to her work with patients as one of only 11 female heart surgeons in Australia, Nikki's a fierce advocate for female health. Not to mention the author of two books, Can You Die of a Broken Heart?, as well as her new one, Pretty Unhealthy, Why Our Obsession with Looking Healthy is Making Us Sick, which investigates why, despite our love of all things wellness, our health as a society is declining. She's here to talk about all this, as well as why we all need to show our hearts some love. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr Nikki Stamp. Nikki, thanks so much for being here. And there's so much I want to chat to you about today, but I have to start with a question that's a biggie, but it's intriguing, and it's one that you address in your first book, Tell us, can we actually die of a broken heart? <laughs> it's a million-dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, you can is the short answer. Uh, however, it is exceedingly rare. Maybe Exceedingly rare, maybe a stretch. It's very uncommon. Um, you know, most of us, if we have some sort of you know, terrible event, we will struggle through it. Um, there will definitely be some changes to our body and our mind, but we'll be okay. But there is a small group of people who, yeah, actually will die of a broken heart. It's a certain condition, isn't it? Is that right? So, yeah. So there is like one condition which is, is sort of colloquially called broken heart syndrome, which is called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and that tends to be seen in usually postmenopausal women and after a most of the time an emotional upheaval, so the death of a loved one, for example. And they basically have what looks like a heart attack, but it isn't. It's basically due to a, a huge surge of adrenaline uh, during, uh, during a stressful period period. It's not very common. Uh, Like I said, though, it it predominantly affects women. So at least 95% of people who have that illness are are women. It's not because women are, you know, overly emotional or anything like that. There is something biologically different about the way a woman's heart responds to to a stressful event. There's Mm. something uh, in, in... in the the makeup of the heart, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. And as I mentioned, obviously it's something you address in your first book, Mm -hmm. but today we're kind of recording this on the day that Nikki's releasing her second book, Pretty Unhealthy. Congrats. Thank you. Exciting. How are you feeling? Excited, definitely. A little nervous, obviously, Mm. because, you know, particularly with this book, definitely in comparison to the first book, it's, it's supposed to be just enough controversy to get people talking. It's it's kind of interesting to be putting that out into the world uh, and uh, I know not everyone is going to agree with it, but I think it's a conversation that absolutely needs to happen. Yeah, tell us a bit about it, kind of what sparked it, what inspired your idea for it. Yeah, so look, the, the whole sort of premise of it is that we're we're too busy trying to be beautiful. We're trying to be thin. We're trying to be attractive. We're trying to be, you know, Instagram perfect, and that's what we're the, that's what's sort of driving our our health behaviours. Uh, except that 
when you are trying to emulate that ideal, which for a lot of us is really difficult, if not impossible to attain, you end up doing things that aren't healthy. Uh, you end up with you know, dangerous dieting, exercise or not exercising or not eating well, for example. Um, and of course, you know, the, the effect on our mental health is is quite undeniable. So I've been reading Nikki's book over the past week or so, and I was just showing her my kind of dog-eared copy and all the notes and all the things. And you talk about so much in there. Mm-hmm. So there's body image, intuitive eating, social media, there's so many elements to it. And you speak a little bit about the research and the writing process, like you were going behind enemy lines a little <laughs> bit. And there's lots of your own personal experiences in there too. And what was that like for you? Tell us a bit about that, kind of what you drew on and had to do to write this book. Look, this was uh, a real fact-finding mission for me. This uh, resulted in me talking to a lot of experts, reading a lot of things that I hadn't really read about, you know, finding out answers to questions that I didn't already know the answer to. Mm. It was, I think, a real time of, of exploring for me what we're exposed to because just like anyone else I get these same messages even though I have a medical degree and, and a lot of training I still get these same messages and still vulnerable to them so it was kind of a, a personal growth process for me writing this book um, and and sometimes it was it was difficult I noticed particularly as I was approaching the end of the book that all these accounts or things that I had read, people I was following who were basically embodying this, you know, you need to be beautiful to be healthy message, they they were really starting to make me feel bad. And I had always imagined that I would finish the book. And as soon as I had uh, finished the last word, that I would then unfollow all these people, but I didn't last that long. (laughs) (laughs) So like a massive social media clean out. And I felt so good afterwards. Like liberating? I totally felt liberated. I felt, yeah, free and uh, I felt like, you know, I was kind of sticking it to the man. (laughs) Like here I am crusading by unfollowing people. (laughs) Um, Not really. But, you know, I just I felt good. I felt so much better about myself. And I also just in the process of researching it, writing it, talking to experts, talking to my friends sometimes and asking them, you know, what do you guys think about this or, you know, how do you feel about you know, these people, it was quite liberating. And I felt that by the time I got to the end of the book, I felt so much better about myself and so much better about being healthy in my behaviour, not in how I look. Mm. It's such a good point you make, though, because actually it's such an easy exercise to do. Like, as you know, we're all on Instagram Mm -hmm. and you're scrolling and you see things where you're just like... And I was doing it myself because you almost feel either not great or just a bit indifferent. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? No, it makes no difference to me right. having this person on my feet and actually it feels good and it's liberating and it, you don't you know, you feel good for it, a benefit. You absolutely do. And I, I think um, you know, I think you know, if you look at social media, for example, I think it'd be great to see changes in what people share would be great, particularly if those people have a lot of influence. Um, but the reality is that's really difficult to achieve. And so in that instance, what we follow is something that we can take control of and and you're not then leaving your well-being in the hands of someone who's not really that interested in it anyway. Do you have any like favorite accounts or ones you'd recommend for making you feel good? What makes you feel oh good? Oh my gosh. So I I follow a much broader range of accounts than I used to and I started following a lot more people who are different to me. People who are maybe not as able-bodied, people who look differently, people um, from different backgrounds, people of different sizes, shapes, even people who have slightly different opinions. 
looking at their stuff and going, oh, I'm not 100% sure I agree with what you say, but it's making me think and I like that and that's interesting. So mm-hmm. I keep following them to you know, broaden my, my views. And some people I love following, I love the food medic, Hazel Wallace. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah she's yeah, great. She's wonderful. And I think she has a really good balance. I follow a number of nutritionists and dietitians, the Rooted Project, and there are uh, two UK-based um, dietitians who uh, basically set up this this online uh, account called the Rooted Project, where they debunk a lot of nutrition myths, um, and they do it in such a non-judgmental and really easy to understand way. I follow well, I Way by Jamila. Yes. I mean, she is just like the best. I love her. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you see, she just did a thing, a, a great magazine shoot where she's smashing the scales yeah. and the sledgehammer. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's like she's really liberating. Mm. She's in such a great position to be able to use her platform to uh, stand up for, for people. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. Um, I follow just a lot of body positive people I follow a lot of people who exercise in a really inclusive fashion so not really thin slim girls like you know people who are every different shape and size uh, who who exercise or who have a different approach to dietetics I mean I, I could probably go through my phone and find <laughs> a whole bunch of people but we'll put some of them in the show notes we'll put, yeah that'd be good <laughs> it's always hard when someone says who do you follow I'm like you know people <laughs> these people sure but I think those principles of people are, you know like people who are different people yeah. who are, are sort of going against the grain has been really um, really good really eye-opening mm. huge themes in the book as well which I really loved are kindness compassion Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to compassion to ourselves Mm -hmm. I guess and Mm -hmm. you talk in such an interesting way about it not just as ideas but actually as ideas grounded in science Mm -hmm. which is really interesting Mm -hmm. and can you just tell us a bit about self-compassion I guess self-kindness and the role it plays in our wellness yeah so look you know self-compassion is the ability to sort of look inward to yourself and and kind of you know be kind and give yourself a break um and not give yourself a free pass all the time that's not what compassion is a lot of people think that that's it's an excuse to be um you know complacent but that's not the case at all self-compassion is about saying hey listen I missed a workout or I, um, you know, made an idiot of myself doing something. And, and rather than turning to shame and guilt and things like that is saying, you know what, it happens. I'm going to, it makes me feel bad and that's okay. And here's what I'm going to do next time. And that ability to move forward rather than sort of berating yourself, getting sort of tied up in emotions and, and bogged down in, in, in that horrible feeling mm. when, when you feel like you haven't met an expectation. I think that that's, that's really the antidote to the punishment that we love dishing out to ourselves. Not all, but some, uh, and probably a good proportion of, of wellness industry, diet industry and stuff like that is geared towards making you feel that you're not good enough. And self-compassion is kind of an antidote to that. What do you reckon then? How do we cultivate it? I think it's practice. Yeah. I, I think it's a skill um, because there's an element of being mindful about it, you know, sitting in that moment and saying, I feel uncomfortable. And being able to sit with that and just look at that emotion subjectively or objectively rather, rather than sort of getting bogged down in that horrible, horrible feeling. And that's not something that you just wake up and do. That was something I sort of struggled with writing the book is, you know, we're trying to get people to be more positive about how they feel and how they look. And sometimes it feels like, something else to fail at <laughs> you know like something else that I'm not going to achieve you know, I can't do what the girl on Instagram can do and I can't look like her and now I can't love my body as much as someone else but I think that's that's not self-compassion and it, it 
does take time to, to cultivate that. And I, I sure as hell can't do it uh, 100% yeah. of the time, but I, I definitely learned to be just a little bit nicer to myself. Yeah. At least prioritising that, mm-hmm. even putting that forefront of mind is a step towards cultivating it, I guess. Totally yeah. is, yeah. yeah. You, if you don't, uh, if you don't uh, give yourself a break and understand, then, you know, you, you're never going to, to make that next step. It makes me think of as well, I, this isn't a body image thing, but that idea of showing yourself a little compassion. Mm-hmm. I remember when Ash Barty, when she was playing and she didn't get kind of make it through as far as she wanted in Wimbledon, I think mm-hmm. it was. Yes. And people were interviewing her and she was like, you know what, I'm gutted and this is sad, but tomorrow the sun will come out, I'll be back on the court and back to it. And I just love that attitude of... Yep. I can learn from this and I can grow from this, but it's not the end of the world right. and we'll move forward. And it applies that, to so many areas of life, right? Wasn't that refreshing when she said that? You're like, oh, that's, yes, what she said. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. It was quite an uplifting thing to hear. And I think that's, you know, that really embodies what, what we probably should do a little bit more often. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing you talk about a lot is the idea of positive body image. Mm. And you refer to a really great definition of it in the book or um, a description of it from a researcher. And I'm hoping I pronounce this right. Tra- uh, Tracy Tilka, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to quote from the book here. Mm. And she talks about positive body image is love and respect for the body that allows us to appreciate our own unique beauty, mm. what our body can do for us mm. and to admire our body, even if it doesn't fit society's ideal. It enables us to feel comfortable and confident with our body and emphasise its assets, not its imperfections. Positive body image also um, allows us to disregard the negative information and incorporate the good. And what it isn't is an unwavering love for your body, thinking you look banging hot no matter what happens. <laughs> and I wonder why you love that definition so much. You know, why is this posi- a positive body image like this so important? Well, I think I love that definition so much because I think it's it's realistic, isn't it? Mm. It's not, you know, I am you know, I am smoking hot 24-7, which is not that realistic. It really, it's realistic, it's achievable. But I think the reason that I, I really, really related to that and found that useful is actually the research that poor body image uh, does have significant physical and mental uh, problems. So poor body image is associated with exercising less. It's associated with dangerous dieting, disordered eating. Um, I read a paper just last week, actually, when they looked at body image concerns in teenagers, and I think it was in a UK sample. They found that teenagers, boys and girls who had uh, poor body image, went on to carry out a whole bunch of really uh, potentially dangerous behaviours, self-harm, drug use, alcohol use, all those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a genuine problem that, that risks our physical and mental health. Um, so that's why that kind of idea idea really resonated with me because we we like to kind of motivate ourselves by saying our our bodies aren't good enough and you know that kind of shame you into guilt you into doing something about it but that's that's not right. It, it, it doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> uh, and we've got to really turn away from that. I like that idea of celebrating as well what your body can do. Oh, I yeah. mean, so good. You know, it's so good because it, it, the functional side of things is where where we will find that motivation. It's where we will we will be able to keep going with our health and wellness goals. You know, there is research to suggest that if you are exercising for an appearance goal, your motivation might be might be okay for a little while, but then it will fade away. Whereas if you are motivated to exercise because of what you can do and what you can achieve, then that's more likely to be longer lasting and much more fulfilling, you know, to yourself, to your soul. Uh, it's it's great when you can focus on like a 
new skill, even a small achievement. And that small achievement might be actually go, going for a walk, doing something simple, like actually getting out there. Yeah. It's functional. It's it's great. And, and you know, someone who I think this is probably why I really like it, someone who looks at the human body every day from a functional perspective, you know, and I, I see how amazing we are. I can't help but be amazed by ourselves, by everything that happens within it, within us every single day. So I love the idea that focusing on someone's ability, even the tiniest little things that happen that we don't even know about, I think is really, really cool. Makes me think of that's an anecdote you give, I think, about one of your patients mm-hmm. in the book. And I can't remember, maybe you can clarify the details for me, but I think you performed an incredibly intricate surgery on mm-hmm. her and when she woke up, I think, what do you ask if she was happy? And she mm-hmm. just said, oh, I'm just happy my body can move. I'm happy yeah. I can have my body to do what it needs to do. Yeah, and, and I think in my line of work, you know, I see people who are really sick and, you know, they are just grateful for the ability to do even the simplest things. Um, and for me, I think that helps me understand what health actually is, you know, because mm. I have people who are just so unbelievably grateful for sometimes a second or more <laughs> chance at life and being able to, you know, walk the dog, for example, without, you know, feeling short of breath is like a huge thing for them. And when I think maybe when you're surrounded by that, it kind of clarifies what's actually important. And I think even as well, that idea of cultivating that positive body image, it can help you in ways you wouldn't think. Because I think there's things about if you, you know, aren't, you know, as keen on the appearance of your breast, then you're less likely to get breast checks and it can affect how often you go for screenings and mm-hmm. things like that. So it, it impacts you in ways that you wouldn't think. Like it's so important. Uh, that, that research, when I started reading around that, about how body image um, affects, or well, poor body image affects us going to the doctor to get what is it, are essentially life-saving tests done, it made me really, really sad and, and pretty angry actually. You know, we we are potentially being taught to risk our, our health because we're so ashamed of what we look like. Uh, I just thought that's 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 really you know it's not good enough. We can't be we can't be letting these sort of what are really trivial pursuits in some ways affecting affecting our our health like that. What do you think then? Because I guess you know we all have goals, perhaps fitness goals or health goals, and. How do you find that balance between striving for some sort of change mm-hmm. um, that could be really positive for you, but also not letting it get to a place perhaps where it changes your mindset in a way that it's not healthy for you? How do you find that balance between pursuing a goal, I guess? Yeah, I think that's a, a good question. And it was one that I kind of struggled with, like, you know, when where do you draw the line at pushing yourself healthily? Like mm-hmm. as in, you know, I'm going to I'm going to force myself to do something or I'm going to force myself to um, have a have a run or, or, or work towards, you know, maybe a half marathon. And where do, where do you sort of say, actually, you know what, I'm fine as I as I am. And I think it's I think that that line probably rests in in well first of all are those behaviors actually healthy like are you over exercising are you you know running through injury when you really shouldn't be um you know do you feel guilty if you miss a miss a workout like not just like mm, yeah really should have gone for a run but like that really overwhelming uh sense of shame and guilt and those sorts of you know negative emotions are probably warning signs that that's not such a such a healthy goal i think there's nothing wrong with goal setting i think there's nothing wrong with striving for you know awesomeness <laughs> <laughs> or you know like like a new skill you know like it, it, 
it's a great feeling and I think if that's that's what you're getting at if your your goal end goal is just amazing you know it's going to make you feel so oh, fulfilled and, and proud of yourself I think that's that's a good thing it, and tuning into those negative emotions is really important mm. we're not that good at that really are we I think um, you know being mindful about what's making us uncomfortable is is definitely another skill we probably all need to learn yeah it's a whole new podcast <laughs> itself, <laughs> it is, <isn't> it? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about life as a heart and lung surgeon. <laughs> you know, we've all seen greys, we've all seen ER. Is it anything like we've seen on TV? I'm a Brit, I'm like, we've all seen Casualty. Oh, <laughs> Casualty is like great. <laughs> I didn't know they had it out here. Yeah, no, no, I love a bit of Casualty. Um, I think that Casualty is probably closer than Grey's Anatomy. Um, actually, the, the TV show that's closest, I think, to real life is Scrubs. Oh, really? Which people think is, like, bizarre, but because they deal, I think, you know, obviously in a, you know, a uh, uh, funny way, they deal with the fact that life in a hospital has ups and downs um, and I think they do that quite, you know, really, really well and with a lot of sensitivity. Uh, Grey's Anatomy and ER, nah. <laughs> <laughs> no, George Clooney's not so much. Though. No, I, I've looked. Um, I haven't found him hiding anywhere and, and honestly I don't know what they do in their on-call rooms because... You know, on-call rooms are for sleeping because you're exhausted. Not the uh, deep emotional chats and all the no, things. No, no, and certainly nothing else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I love my job. I, I really do. I'm like a pig in mud when I'm operating. I think it's, you know, amazing. Uh, and I think part of that comes from, as I said, that sort of, I suppose, fascination with our bodies and how cool they are. It, it never gets old. But it's busy. It's hard. It's some days it's really, really hard. You know, some days I go home and think, I'd, wow, I, I'm not sure how I how I managed to cope with that or do that. But at the end of the day, I, I, I love the opportunity to help someone else. When something goes really well and you get to see people afterwards um, and they're better and they're healthy and they're happy and they're grateful and their families feel the same, uh, there's just there's nothing better really. It's such a beautiful thing to be a part of. It's a real privilege. Is that one of the things that you come back to when it comes to actually handling pressure and the hours and the things that you do which I you know there's not many jobs that compare to that kind of role when you've got someone's life in your hands you know what actually helps you look after yourself in that sense look I, I think absolutely when you know when I'm tired and and I think oh gosh I really need a break that you know need desire as well to help someone else is is important I think as soon as you stop caring about your job and for me that job involves caring about people it's time to go mm. <laughs> but yeah no look my self-care is is important I'm definitely not perfect at it <laughs> it does keep me it keeps me healthy healthy and I need to be healthy to, to do my job um, and I'm lucky to have a really great support system to to help me in those times when I'm tired or grumpy or you know or feeling really down yeah um, it's so valuable isn't it the people around you oh hugely I and, and as I say that I'm very privileged to, to have that yeah and you must have like we spoke about one earlier but so many experiences and encounters with such a range of people mm. and encounters of people and really intimate ones I think as well and oh, you know absolutely. what really stands out for you like you mentioned some in the book but what's kind of resonates with you gosh just so many one of my favorites uh not that long ago a lady I met well I met her she didn't make me she was in a medical coma for a number of days had a massive heart attack unexpectedly and we put a mechanical heart in her. I almost always cry when I tell this story, so apologies. No, God, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then I think it was just over a year, a year and a half later, she got a heart transplant. I think the day, day after when she was awake after a heart transplant, she 
borrowed my stethoscope and listened to her heart. And she hadn't had a heartbeat for over a year because of because of this mechanical heart. And she's just in tears. I'm in tears. You know, it's a pretty special moment. I'd gotten to know her so well and her family so well and to see her. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, that, those those stories like that are just, ugh, you see, I'm losing my words. Yeah. <laughs> We're all getting emotional. Everyone's yeah. going to cry. Um, it's, it, it makes it very, very worthwhile. Yeah. And, um, you know, I... Oh, I just I can't I can't explain it. I just can't explain it because it's just so special. Yeah, it's magic. Yeah. Sorry, I just co- totally bumbled through that because yeah, I just can barely get my words out when I'm talking. No, about I'm those glad stories. I'm not the one talking right now. I'm like wiping the tears. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's wonderful. <laughs> and so I think I mentioned earlier, so you're one of eleven female heart surgeons in Australia. And what's your experience been like in a I guess male dominated industry? You know, you have your hashtag. I look like a surgeon. And tell me a bit about that and what your story's kind of been in that sense. So, yeah, look, there's not many female heart surgeons. It's 5% of heart surgeons are female. Um, And there are a lot of reasons behind that. Uh, Some of them are, you know, it's a heavy workload. um, And for some people, they don't want to have to juggle that with, say, family or even just, you know, living normal life, like having hobbies and stuff. (laughs) Um, And that's fine. Um, But unfortunately, there is a lot of gender bias still in medicine and in surgery in particular. And certainly I've had some not so great experiences. I've had some good experiences. And some people have had it a lot better than me and some people have had it a lot worse. I think all in all, though, there is a lot of work to do. And I look like a surgeon was one of the things that, that came out about that. So uh, it started, I think it's nearly six years ago now, uh, five or six years ago. We uh, had this uh, news item pop up and it was about a young woman who is an engineer uh, in the US uh, and she was on a, an advertisement on a billboard for her company saying, you know, I'm an engineer and I love my job because of XYZ. And all these people on social media started saying she doesn't look like an engineer. They're obviously trying to reach a male demographic because she was attractive. And, you know, she clapped back and said, actually, I am an engineer. I look like an engineer. Hashtag, I look like an engineer. And uh, a few of my colleagues in the US saw that and started, hashtag, I look like a surgeon. And the whole idea was to be positive, um, is to provide positive role models, positive uh, examples of, of what female surgeons look like, what they do, see them parenting, seeing them cycling, hiking, you know, cooking, whatever. And it really sort of grew, it sort of went viral, it got picked up by, you know, BBC and CBC in America and a whole bunch of other news outlets because it was finally sort of in the public psyche that this is a bit of a problem. It grew even beyond that and became a a place for mentoring, for friendship, for academic collaboration, for support, research, all these kinds of things that were, you know, just came out of you know, one tweet, which is just such a, you know, such a um, modern day thing to have happen. But it, it was it, it was desperately needed. It has to change. We have to change everybody's view. I think the public, but also within the profession, it's, it's just time to change. And our patients deserve it. Mm. You know, our patients deserve to have a medical workforce that represents them. And currently it does not. Even like there was a story, I think, I didn't know it too well, but I know you'd shared it this morning mm-hmm. about a lady. I think she's she a trainee mm-hmm. surgeon and she had a load of tattoos and this mm-hmm. kind of thing and she was just like, I'm going to break against the idea that mm-hmm. actually I don't look like someone who should be operating you, but I, you know, bloody well will. Like, yeah, you know. so that's Sarah, Sarah Gray. So uh, I know Sarah, she's uh, oh, an intern wow. in Adelaide. And yeah, she's she's 
fantastic. I mean, but that's something, you know, to fight against in addition to, to you know, not being male. Uh, you know, when you add in, you know, people of colour, it gets it starts to get really complicated. But, yeah, I mean, look, she's she's awesome and, um, you know, it's such a it's such a, a reminder that just because she has a lot of tattoos, just because you look a certain way, it has no bearing whatsoever on how good you are at your job mm. and how worthwhile you are being there. And I say, you know, it's going to be relatable. She says this, you know, sometimes younger patients can relate to her because they see someone that shares a common interest, yeah, a bit of common and it connects ground. connects you, yeah. Right. Apart from the fact that there's a moral imperative to eradicate gender bias in our society it's just it's just the right thing to do mm. i think that the business case in in medicine is that it's good for our patients yeah and obviously you're a huge advocate for female heart health in particular mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'd love to know some of the biggest kind of issues we should know about really what kind of the things that even you know people think i guess that it's something that you need to think about when you're older but it's just not the case right no so i i guess there's a whole bunch of problems with with heart disease in women uh, first of all is a lot of women don't know that it's something they need to be worried about we always think it's something for our dads or our uncles our brothers so what we've been shown in the media particularly for many many years and that was only you know something that we've sort of worked out in medical research in the last decade or so. So when I was at medical school, there was no difference. It was heart attacks uh, and they were a men's pro- man's problem. <laughs> and that's just not the case. So there's a biological difference between a man's heart and a woman's heart, which means that if a woman has a heart attack, she's more likely to die. There are illnesses like Takotsubo, like that broken heart syndrome, which are more likely to affect women. There is this thought that women perhaps have different symptoms. There's some research coming out now that says that may not be the case, but so we're not sure. But women can get things like tiredness and shortness of breath, you know, really vague things that make mm-hmm. it hard for her to, to detect. I think the most concerning thing is that a woman, uh, if she has a heart attack, is uh, is less likely to do well because of probably some systemic biases. So if a woman has a heart attack, she uh, is less likely to get those arteries reopened up. She's less likely to go home on life-saving medications. She's less likely to go to something called cardiac rehab, which we know absolutely improves quality of life and reduces the risk of problems down the track. Um, And a lot of those come from, from... you know, probably systemic biases. So we don't really take women's pain seriously, for example, and this could be a very similar thing. Some of our uh, medications uh, that we use for heart disease, uh, generally medical research is done on men because they don't want to add in, you know, lady hormones and muddy the waters, Mm. which means that some of the medications don't work as well for women. Uh, Heart transplants, they present different problems for women. Women are often referred late. I I feel like I'm (laughs) rabbiting on a bit here, but I think it gives you an idea of the the gravity of the problem. So just in the last few years, we've really seen a a bit of an explosion in, in research. And I think one of the things that's come out from some stuff in the United States is that younger women really aren't clued up about this. Uh, And the reason that that's a problem is that heart disease starts when we're young, like in our teens and 20s. So what we do in early life matters for the rest of our life, which is really hard, right? It's, Mm. It's hard because it seems like 
forever away. And, you know, we think, oh, you know, it's fine. I'll take a tablet or have a quick operation or something. Something will change. I'll fix it, yeah. Something will be fine. Um, but, you know, nothing any of us can do is as good as prevention. Yeah. Uh, so we really we really need to make sure that we're looking after our young people particularly. But, yeah, as you can see, women's heart disease, a little bit of a mess, a lot to do. Um, but fortunately there is a, a growing group of, of researchers and um, medics who are very interested, very motivated. Funnily enough, they are largely women. <laughs> um, another reason to have women. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's really important that we we start investigating these sex differences in between men and women for for a whole bunch of illnesses. And and obviously, being my my pet thing, uh, for me, it's heart disease. What can we do? I guess anyone listening, myself, you know, what can we actually do to look after our own hearts? Look, it's it's boring advice. It's really simple. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the best though. Right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's those those lifestyle things. It's it's uh, you know making sure that you're exercising, that you're eating uh, lots of fruit and veg, lots of whole grains, um, you know, healthy fats like nuts and avocado, you know, oily fish, you know, basically whatever, what, what our, our nutritional guidelines say. So, see, it sounds like such boring advice. <laughs> um, you know, that you're not smoking. Um, absolutely get your, your hearts checked by your GP. 100% I would recommend that everyone has that done and um, particularly for women uh, who are approaching menopause or postmenopausal, there is actually uh, Medicare now fund uh, what we call a heart health check. Okay. It's a good way, it's a good reminder for everybody to, to get that done. If you've had problems during pregnancy, if you've had um, preeclampsia, which is like a high blood pressure type syndrome during pregnancy or diabetes during pregnancy, you, you need to be probably a little bit more aware. We know that that can be a risk for down the track. Knowing your risk is, is really, really important. And I, I think one of the ways that we can do that is to empower women, educate women that they are then able to demand the health care that they deserve. That was something I was thinking about, actually. We really want to feel so empowered to advocate for our own health, but it can be hard sometimes. You know, you go and see your GP and literally depending on who you have, you could feel, or the t- even the type of character you are, you could feel listened to or you could feel rushed out the door, you know, and it's, oh, you know, what's your advice for being our own health champion, I guess. Be your own health champion. Mm. I mean, really, you know, you, you you do know your own body best. Look, sometimes you're going to go to the doctor and they're going to turn you upside down and find nothing. It doesn't mean that your symptoms aren't real, but maybe there's just something, you know, we can't find or whatever. But if you're not happy with it, you can be a champion for your own health. And I know that's hard. You know, I'm, I'm a doctor. I've been in that position. I have had a doctor's appointment in the last year where I walked out thinking, I feel so small. Was my regular doctor, um, <laughs> but I did. I felt so small and unheard, and um, and I walked out. And I rang my friend. And I said, "Oh my god, I hope I don't talk to my patients like that because I just I felt so insignificant." And you know, that's that's from someone who knows what they're talking about. And I knew that you know I wasn't going to leave there unsafe, right? But. Not everyone has that luxury. Um, so I think it's absolutely fine to, to ask what you want. And if you don't get it there, go somewhere else. Yeah. What are you kind of excited about, I guess, looking to the future in the next however many years, you know, whether it's in the wellness space or the heart health space? Is there anything or an area of research perhaps that makes you just go, 
oh my god I can't wait or that really gets you buzzing you know oh actually that's actually a really good question because I've uh, <laughs> while I was uh, researching this book I spoke to um, quite a quite a number of researchers and experts and one of the researchers I spoke to uh, we've ended up collaborating on research oh, wow. and I've started my, my PhD because I have so much time <laughs> oh, congratulations <laughs> thank you so <laughs> but um, what we're looking at is how do we get people to change their behaviors so like it's all very well to say do this do that you know exercise eat well and particularly after heart surgery that's what we're specifically looking at it's actually really hard to do in practice particularly because our our choices don't happen in a vacuum uh, life gets in the way there's a whole bunch of social determinants of health like how much money you earn where you live um, do you have somewhere safe to exercise you know are you literally just run off your feet so all those sorts of things uh, so trying to work out how to encourage people to do that and I would love that if we can kind of crack the code I suppose on how to translate our knowledge because everyone knows that you know you need to look after yourself but how do we crack the code and move from that to actually being able to do that Mm. Um, and I think some of that is going to be tapping into each of us as individuals Um, and I think some of it is going to be policy change environmental change you know government staff private sector staff to you know facilitate people making uh, healthy choices Mm. Um, because like I said it doesn't happen in a vacuum so that's what I'm really excited about that I'm really excited to hopefully you know uncover some important information on how we can better support people to to be healthy you have to keep us posted oh how you go in the PhD (laughs) (laughs) so lastly I'd love to know we've spoken about so much today but if people were only take to take a few things away from this, and I hope you take way, way more, but if there was only a few things, what would you want us to know? I think the most important message I could tell people is that your health is totally worth it uh, and you don't have to do anything fancy. You Even the simple things, simple, achievable, uh, realistic goals are what, what matters. Um, so anything you do is wonderful. Dr. Nikki Stamp, thank you. I was fangirling so much over Nikki earlier. I've always wanted to interview her, so now I'm so stoked to have you in here. Yeah, thanks for the time. Thank and congrats you. Congrats on the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Women's Health Uninterrupted. We hope you enjoyed the episode and found something inspiring to take into your day. If you'd like to leave a review, we would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out on an episode. For more from us, pick up the latest copy of Women's Health magazine or check out womenshealth.com.au. The health advice contained in this episode is of a general nature. If you're concerned about any issues, see a health professional. If you feel affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, help is available. Call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au and the Butterfly Foundation at thebutterflyfoundation.org.au.